Take a deep breath, take the higher road That's what they always say, as if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself, it's life ain't just a dream You make your own, so kick and scream The people will like with a never-ending force You never had the chance, so what you waiting for? The day has come, my friend, cause this is war Welcome to Nurses Out Loud. I am your host, Nurse April, and today I want to talk about two really important news stories that are not getting adequate coverage in mainstream media, which none of us should be surprised about. The first story that I want to talk about is the secret COVID lab that was found in California. I want to go over the timeline of everything that's going on, if you haven't heard about it, because what they are doing in this lab has some very, very important implications. And it makes me wonder if it's happening out in California, where else is it happening? In addition, I wanna talk about a news story that I came across that's fascinating and uh, kind of scary. There has been an outbreak of leprosy in Southern Florida. Yes, you heard me correct. Leprosy. So we're going to talk about what's going on in Southern Florida, what the CDC is saying and what they believe the cause of this outbreak is, what we actually think or what I actually think might be the cause, and kind of wondering if maybe these two stories should be combined, if it's kind of leading us or giving us clues as to what's actually happening in the country, in the United States of America, and potentially all over the world. So again, thanks for listening to Nurses Out Loud. I am your Monday host, and you get a different nurse host every day of the week, Monday through Friday. Um, Our shows typically air at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with an encore at 11 p.m., and then our shows go to podcast, usually a day or two after. If you go to the americaoutloud.com website, you can actually see there's a page for Nurses Out Loud, but there's also so many articles to keep you up to date with what's going on. And it's not just about healthcare, it's about all the different topics you could think of that are being covered by other hosts, great hosts, by the way, um, who have shows on America Out Loud. So I really, really encourage you to go to the website, um, download the app so you can listen to the uh, whatever show is currently playing because we have an actual live player. So you'll always be able to listen to whatever's currently playing. And you can also go visit the store at America Out Loud, and you can find our show sponsors there, and there's coupons. So right now, of course, everyone is dealing with inflation and the cost of everything has skyrocketed. skyrocketed. So getting a coupon or a discount code is so helpful. And I really, really encourage you to go there and support our show sponsors because without them, we would not have a show. We wouldn't have a platform to be able to share all of this critical information with you. So please, please, please visit the website and stay up to date. So I want to start off with this first topic, which is the secret COVID lab that was found in California. I had come across this headline a few times and ignored it. And then one day I decided, let me just see what's going on. And I was actually pretty shocked at the story that was being reported. 
So apparently, in March of this year, there was a warehouse that had been marked unsafe to occupy. And within this warehouse, it was found to have nearly a thousand mice, 175 of which were dead and kept in horrific conditions. There were electrical violations, improperly stored biohazard waste. Um, they were found to be producing COVID-19. There was blood, tissue, bodily fluid samples, and serums in thousands of vials that were unlabeled. And there was, so there was about 800 mice that were still alive. And they were able to contact a representative of the company who was described as a potential Chinese national who informed investigators that these mice were genetically engineered to catch and carry the COVID-19 virus. Prestige Biotech is the name of the company. They're licensed in Nevada, not in California. And one of the addresses used uh, to register this company is was a vacant building in Las Vegas. There were some other unverified sources on Substack that reported that the there were other addresses linked to this company directly linked to China. And when they did their inspection, they found thousands of packages, many of which had shipping labels from China. So that's in March of 2023. In April of 23, an abatement warrant was ordered and served and 800 of the mice were euthanized. That was on April 12th. Then on April 25th, the Reedley fire chief sent a warning to the city manager and detailed a potential disaster for the city with an evacuation plan if needed. Fast forward about a week, April, this was now May 4th of 2023, the CDC found when they, they came in and did an inspection, they found infectious agents, both bacterial and viral, at least 20 different dangerous viruses were identified, including HIV, hepatitis B and C, rubella, malaria, E. coli, pneumonia, herpes, and chlamydia. And that's just some of the infectious agents that were identified. Fresno Superior Court documents indicate the lab illegally disposed of medical waste in the landfill, but the operators of the lab aren't forthcoming. So they don't have all of the details. They don't know everything that's going on, but they do know that some of this medical waste was disposed in the landfill. So in, in July of this year, so what are we, August now? So just a month ago, um, they finished removing this hazardous material and the CDC is supposed to come in and do some more testing, I think, but some other details, um, the former lawyer for the company is now suing the lab for fraud and bad business practices. But some of the images you'll have to see, and I have links included in the show notes so you can see all of my sources where I got this information from. And then you can actually visually see for yourself what was found in this lab, but it was crazy. Like they had things plugged in, so many extension cords. It was definitely a fire hazard. They had like 36 refrigerator freezers located on site. 
lots of biological agents. There were chemicals everywhere. Um, then you had, like I said before, the blood, the serum, everything a biological lab would normally have, according to Joe Prado, the assistant director for the Fresno County Public Health. They were utilizing, and this is what they claim, so quote, they were utilizing laboratory mice to see whether or not the COVID test kits were actually testing for COVID. That's what they said. So that was the purpose of the laboratory mice on site, according to Prado. However, another report said that they were supposedly testing for in vitro fertilization lab kits. So there's some um, difference in reporting. So I don't know all of the details, but I do know that the story isn't adding up depending on who you listen to. And they apparently this is not illegal to run a lab in California. So that's one of the things that one of their state representatives wants to get changed immediately because it's not illegal to run the lab. And what was illegal was how they were running it. But in the meantime, they're doing all this testing. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is if this particular lab hadn't been discovered, and let me just back up a little bit. This lab has been in business since 2015. And they were originally uh, in, in Fresno, California. And then they moved to Reedley. Their Fresno, California location actually burned. So there was a fire that broke out in August of 2020. And the fire report could never figure out what caused the fire. They said it was likely electrical, but they don't know. So that was in August of 2020. One of the questions that I would love to know is, was this on purpose or was it an accident? Okay. So now remember, Timeline here, February of 2019, they moved to Fresno, California on East Fortune Avenue. August of 2020, there was a fire that broke out. September of 2020, there was a city report noting that there was unpermitted lab walls, electrical work, overloaded circuits, and hundreds of feet of extension cords. And for two years, nothing was done about it. So from September of 2020, Until August of 2022, there wasn't another report on this particular business. In August of 2022, the company apparently fell on hard times. They transferred their assets to another company, Prestige Biotech, and they began bankruptcy proceedings, but they hadn't filed as of yet. And so this company called Alliance, which specializes in cabinetry, allowed them to sign a temporary lease which was located in Reedley, California. Now this relocation was illegal. I don't know why, but in California it was illegal. So they moved from Fresno, you remember their first place burned, to Reedley and they were subletting with this other company. So this landlord sent an email to the fire chief in August of 2022. And the fire chief's name was Carrie Donis or is Carrie Donis. And in there, one of the quotes said, it says it's a medical type supply business, but something is off here, end quote. And the building owner was also quoted as saying, the smell in this building could be the result of animal testing. The fire chief then went on to say that nothing was done about it due to COVID. Now, this is as of 
August of 2022. Not of 2020, August of 2022. So anyway, fast forward to October 31st of 2022, the city code enforcement contacted the Fresno County Department of Public Health to check out the location because the city was concerned about these chemicals at the site that they, they found out were there because uh, one of their inspectors had noticed that there was this hose coming out of what appeared to be a vacant warehouse. So they went in to investigate and that's when they found all of what they found, all of the mice and the medical equipment and all of the chemicals in being improperly stored. All of the, I mean, it was a hot mess. It was definitely, definitely um, a dangerous situation, which is why the fire chief had that emergency plan put in place just in case, because it was definitely a potential disaster. Not only could the place have exploded because of all of the chemicals that were there, but also the, the accidental release of any of those biohazards into the community. Imagine, first of all, just the fact that it was, um, disposed of improperly is, is frightening. Because imagine if you just dump some of these things into a landfill and then it rains and that rain draws that uh, biohazardous waste into the water system. And that water system is then brought into the, the, the public's consumption. So now you're drinking and we do know that there's so much biohazardous waste that's in our drinking water, right? You just turn on the faucet, there's there's waste that's in it. They can only filter so much, or at least that's what we're told. They can only filter out so much. So having this biohazardous waste illegally dumped in any, any kind of way is so dangerous. And the fact that they had, or that they were testing these different infectious diseases, as much as we've heard about the Wuhan lab in China and how it wasn't up to standard and it was dangerous and there was this opportunity for there to be lab leaks, which had happened in the past in the Wuhan lab. Imagine what was going on in this lab. And when you see pictures of it, you're going to be like, there's no way that they were operating this lab in a safe way, according to standards. So one of the things that I want to talk about is... I want to go over the signs and symptoms of some of these infectious diseases that were found in the lab. And the reason why is because if they are using these types of labs in other parts of the country, really in other parts of the world, okay, let's just really be honest. The same situation has been found to be going on in Ukraine. Okay. So, and we know it was going on in China. So Let's not be naive to think that it's not happening in every single country all over the world. If any of these infectious diseases got out, or if they're being used as biological warfare against us, what do we need to know? Okay, so I want to talk about some of the signs and symptoms of some of the main um, infectious diseases that were found. So you know for yourself, and I've, I'll include it in the show notes so that you can have it and, and there's links as well so you can do more research because there's only so much time that I can like really just kind of briefly summarize each thing. So let's start with HIV. They found HIV at this lab. So symptoms, signs and symptoms. So within two to four weeks after infection with HIV, about two thirds of people will have flu-like illness. 
And this is the body's natural response to HIV infection. So symptoms may include flu-like symptoms, fever, chills, rash, night sweats, muscle aches, sore throat, fatigue, swollen lymph nodes, and mouth ulcers. Um, with HIV, the route of transmission is body fluids. So if you're exposed to someone's uh, bodily fluids, we usually think about it as a sexually transmitted disease, but it's not just that. If you get poked with um, anything, honestly, we usually say, oh, if you get poked with a needle or, or in healthcare situations, then we always have to get tested for HIV. But it could be more than that. If you get um, accidentally stuck with anything sharp that pierces your skin and allows this virus to be introduced into your body, however that is, if it's from um, some you know broken glass or anything that can cut through your skin and get into your body, if it's introduced through um, bodily fluids, usually not through kissing, but um, sexual intercourse. If you think you've been exposed, the other thing that's a lot of people aren't realizing is that um, HIV infection is going up, especially a young, amongst younger population. I heard a report that the youth 12 and up are also having an outbreak of HIV or of HIV infection. So as sad as that is to have to say, you have to be careful um, and you never know who has it. You can't just look at someone and assume because you will never know. I can tell you from experience working in healthcare, the people you would least expect to be HIV positive are. So those are symptoms that you need to be aware of. The next one, hepatitis B. Symptoms of acute hepatitis B range from mild to severe. They usually appear about one to four months after you've been infected, although you could see them as early as two weeks after you're infected. Some people, usually young children, may not have any symptoms at all. Hepatitis B is um, it's a virus that affects the liver. It's spread when blood, semen, or other body fluids from a person who is infected with the virus enters the body of someone who's not infected. And this can happen through sexual contact, sharing needles, syringes, or other drug injection equipment, or during pregnancy or delivery. Not all people newly infected with hepatitis B have symptoms, like I said before, but those that do, the symptoms include fatigue, poor appetite, stomach pain, nausea, and jaundice. Um, for many people, hepatitis B is actually a short-term illness, but for others, it can become a long-term chronic infection that leads to serious and sometimes life-threatening health issues like liver disease or liver cancer. The thing that's interesting about hepatitis B and C and some of these other illnesses is that if you have a strong immune response, your body will handle it. You'll go through the acute phase and then you won't go into any kind of long-term infection because your body has found a way to properly treat and store antibodies for later. So um, you don't, all, not everyone who has been infected will even know um, or go on to have life-threatening health issues, but it's just something to definitely be aware of. The younger person is when infected with hepatitis B, the greater the chance of developing chronic infections. So about nine in 10 infants who become infected do go on to develop lifelong chronic infection. The risk goes down as a child gets older. So about one in three children who get infected before age six will develop chronic hepatitis. By contrast, 
Almost all children six years and older and adults infected with the hepatitis B virus recover completely and do not develop chronic infection. Now this is according to the CDC and they will go on to say, get vaccinated. This is a vaccine preventable illness. That's why we do it. Do your own research. I of course am vaccinated against hepatitis B I think every single healthcare provider out there is, is, I could be wrong about that, but it's usually a requirement to work in healthcare and to even get into any of these health science programs. And back then, if they told me to get a vaccine, I just did it. So I have all of the vaccines. I am current with all of my vaccines up until COVID. COVID, sorry, I am not doing it. And moving forward, I am not getting anybody's vaccine. I don't care what it is and what it's for. Not doing it. But that's me. You guys have to make the best choice for you after you do your research. So let's go on. Hepatitis C, signs and symptoms. Hepatitis C is also a viral infection that causes liver inflammation. Sometimes this can lead to serious liver damage. The hepatitis C virus spreads through contaminated blood. It's usually curable now, so this is new. Hepatitis C now has a cure with oral medications that are taken every day for two to six months. So before it used to be something that there was no treatment for, but now there is. Some of the symptoms of hepatitis C, bleeding easily, bruising easily, fatigue, poor appetite, a yellow discoloration of the skin and eyes, which is called jaundice, dark colored urine, itchy skin, fluid buildup in your abdomen, which the medical term for that is ascites, Um, Swelling in your legs, weight loss, confusion, drowsiness, and slurred speech, which is due to hepatic encephalopathy, swelling of the brain, Um, and spider-like blood vessels on your skin, and those are called spider angiomas. So if you have any of those signs and symptoms, those are things that you're going to want to contact your doctor to do further testing on. Um, Rubella. So rubella was one of those other infectious diseases that was found in this lab. So signs and symptoms generally appear between two and three weeks after exposure to the virus. And they usually last about one to five days. And they include a mild fever of 102 Fahrenheit or lower, a headache, stuffy or runny nose, red itchy eyes, enlarged tender lymph nodes at the base of the skull, the back of the neck, and the back behind the ears. A fine pink rash that begins on the face and quickly spreads to the trunk and then the arms and legs before disappearing in the same order. And then aching joints, especially in young women. What I want to say, though, about rubella is that most adults who get it usually have a mild illness with this low-grade fever, um, sore throat, and a rash. Some adults may have a headache. Uh, pink eye and general discomfort before the rash appears and about 25 to 50 percent of people infected with rubella will not experience any symptoms now a lot of these symptoms that I'm, I'm listing off I've been hearing about lately um, and it kind of makes me kind of like mm, interesting like for instance the newest COVID strain and you know air quotes was uh, showing up in people to have be causing a pink eye So, you know, also having the cough, the runny nose, general discomfort. Um, So I'm curious as to whether or not these quote unquote COVID strains are 
not being diagnosed properly and if they're really actually spreading these infectious diseases amongst the population but they aren't tracking it properly because they don't want to cause a, a stir they don't want us to be aware they want enough people to get infected and then this is my theory you guys know i'm all about you know coming up with theories and hypotheses that's a part of the scientific method so my hypothesis is that maybe there's a potential that they are not accurately diagnosing the symptoms that people are having. So that's rubella. Just a little back history about rubella. Um, in 1969, rubella was a common disease that occurred primarily among young children. Epidemics occurred every six to nine years with the highest number of cases during the spring. And this is according to the CDC. Rubella was declared eliminated the absence of endemic transmission for 12 months or more from the United States in 2004. However, it's still commonly transmitted in many parts of the world. As a result, less than 10 cases have been reported annually in the United States since elimination was declared. Rubella incidence in the United States has decreased by more than 99% from the pre-vaccine era. So most people also know about the rubella vaccine, like you get your MMR. Um, most people, I think, in the United States have had it, um, but it does continue to circulate in other parts of the world. It's estimated that 100,000 infants are born with congenital rubella syndrome annually worldwide because if a mom gets um, rubella while she's pregnant, it will or it can affect the baby developing in her uterus. So transmission. Rubella is transmitted primarily through direct or droplet contact from nasopharyngeal secretions. Humans are the only natural hosts. In temperate climates, infections usually occur during late winter and early spring. The average incubation period of rubella is 17 days with a range of 12 to 23 days. People infected with rubella are most contagious when the rash is erupting, but they can be contagious from seven days before to seven days after the rash appears. They, they also found malaria. So let's see, malaria which if you've been paying attention to the news, has started to um, spread in Texas and Florida. Interesting. Texas and Florida, see, we seem to be getting hit quite a bit. Let me, let me stop, I have to go to break. On the other side of this break, I'm gonna talk of, about a couple of more diseases that were found in this lab, what the symptoms are and what the treatments are. But I want you to stay tuned, take a listen to our show sponsors, um, take advantage of those coupons and those discount codes and on the other side of this break we'll get back into it it's time in this millions of americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. 
For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. It's time and this is hey, welcome back to Nurses Out Loud. I was, before the break, I was talking about rubella. That was the last infectious disease that we left off on. And I was getting ready to move on to the next one. But before I do that, um, which is malaria, before I do that, I just want to add another thing. There is really no known treatment for rubella. It's just... Um, Basically, they want to tell you if you get rubella, the only testing or the only uh, treatment is um, for comfort. So if you need to take some Tylenol or some cough medicine, that's it. But pretty much you're just going to rely on your body to beat this virus down. Now, if they're telling you to take Tylenol to decrease your fever for comfort, I personally am going to recommend against that. Your body um, uses fevers. So you, you, it increases the temperature of the body in order to kill whatever infectious diseases are happening at the time. So if you decrease your body's temperature, which is your body's, you know, first line of defense against the, the treating this particular infectious disease, if you decrease the temperature, what you're going to do is allow the, and this goes for any infections, whether it's bacterial, parasitic, viral, fungal, by decreasing your temperature, if your body is using the temperature or the heat in order to control replication of the virus, by turning it down, you're allowing it to replicate even more, right? So you're allowing it to proliferate, and that means that you're going to get sicker. It's going to take you longer to defeat the enemy within. So if you can tolerate it, you know, try to allow your body to do what it naturally wants to do so that you can heal faster. In addition, as far as comfort measures go, try to avoid taking Tylenol to get rid of the headache or the body aches or all those other things. Try to use more natural ways, um, getting into a warm bath or shower, using cold or hot compresses, a dark room, different things, breathing methods, things like that to really control the pain and discomfort of infections because you don't want to interfere with your body's natural responses. Okay, that's just my little public service announcement. That's all we have on rubella. Now let's move on to malaria. So again, I was talking before the break about how malaria has been interestingly um, break, uh, spreading here in Texas and in Florida. Now, some people say, and I'm just going to report on what I, I come across a lot of information, but I have heard even before the news started reporting about this malaria outbreak, I had come across some reports that were saying 
that Bill Gates is involved in this research of genetically modifying mosquitoes to, air quotes, vaccinate people against malaria. So interesting, you know, that maybe about a week or so later, the mainstream media started reporting on the fact that Texas and Florida were found to have mosquitoes carrying the malaria um, parasite. So what is malaria? Malaria is a serious disease that spreads when you're bitten by a mosquito infected with these tiny parasites. When it bites, the mosquito injects malaria parasites into your bloodstream. Malaria is caused by the parasites, not by a virus or by a type of bacterium. If it's not treated, malaria can cause severe health problems such as seizures, brain damage, trouble breathing, organ failure, and death. Some of the signs and symptoms of malaria include fever and sweating, chills that shake your whole body, headache and muscle aches, fatigue, chest pain, breathing problems and a cough, uh, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting. And then as it gets worse, it can cause anemia and jaundice, which is the yellowing of the skin I talked about before, either the yellowing of the skin or the yellowing of the whites of the eyes. And then in the most severe form of malaria, it can progress to a coma, also known as cerebral malaria. This type represents about 15% of deaths in children and nearly 20% of adult deaths. So what do you do if you get malaria? How, how would we treat you in the, in the healthcare field? Well, if you've ever traveled to Africa or other countries that have um, malaria outbreaks where it's not uncommon, guess what they use? Yeah, hydroxychloroquine. So that's what is used to treat malaria. If you get it, that's what we're going to use to treat it. Now, the next infectious disease that was found in this lab is E. coli. Most people have probably called, heard about E. coli and E. coli infections. Um, e. coli is actually a common cause of a urinary tract infection. So if you get somehow get this bacteria into the, um, the air, area around your ureter, urethra, excuse me, then the bacteria can travel up the, the tract or the tube and cause a urinary tract infection. And then if it continues and cause the bladder infection, and then if, it, if you allow it to continue untreated, it can travel up into your kidneys, so dangerous. Um, and then you end up with a kidney infection that can then spread to your bloodstream and kill you, right? Septic. So um, E. coli, and E. coli can cause infections all over our body. Uh, it, if you ever get a cut and then it gets exposed to E. coli, it can cause very serious um, infections. And again, that can then travel into your bloodstream and kill you as well. So um, symptoms of E. coli. Infection usually begin three to four days after exposure to the bacteria. Uh, you may become ill as soon as one day after exposure to up to more than a week later. And signs and symptoms include diarrhea, which may, may range from mild and watery to severe and bloody. And this is if you were to get like an E. coli infection, um, like eating food that's contaminated. You might get stomach cramping, pain or tenderness, nausea and vomiting in some people. And um, E. coli can spread in our water systems. It can spread in our food. So one of the concerns for people who live near the border um, and who are farmers is by having immigrants passing through their farms, it truly destroys their crops because people, when they're urinating, defecating in the fields where the crops are being grown, 
that's how that's one of the ways that e coli contaminates our food and then it gets sold in the grocery stores and in the restaurants and that's one of the ways that it gets spread and a lot of people get sick right um, and so they have those recalls it's not uncommon to hear about a recall because of e coli and that's one of the ways that it gets um, that the the produce gets infected so with E. coli, that's another one that is um, treated with antibiotics. Depending on where the infection is, um, will determine what type of antibiotics are used and for how long. But those I just wanted to go over because those were the main ones that were reported on in that were in this lab. So these are infectious diseases that they were growing in the lab. For what reason? We don't know. We have no clue. They don't know. They're still investigating. Um, the owners of the company are not being forthright with information, so we'll just keep following the story and hopefully something gets uncovered. But in the meantime, the fact that this, this lab was being operated in 2019 and before, and we know that we had our COVID outbreak that started, it's believed based on samples that they've gotten from, they've looked at blood samples from American Red Cross uh, blood donations. And people were found to have antibodies to COVID in their blood back in 2019. So it's believed that this has been circulating for longer than what we've known about, what we've known about. But let's just go with the whole end of 2019, beginning of 2020, where we had this COVID outbreak. Um, I remember hearing from one particular source, I don't remember which one, but I remember hearing that the Chinese were saying, it was the Americans who released COVID and the Americans who brought it over to China and infected them. And this was back when things were, you know, getting shifted, blame was getting shifted back and forth. But that stuck in my mind, like, hmm, is it true? This is before I was red pilled as well. I had no idea all the things that I know now. So definitely something interesting when you think about this lab that was being, op well, that was operating in California by Chinese nationals, was there some sort of collaborative effort with the intent of spreading these viruses onto the U United States population and globally abroad? So that's that story. Now, here's another story that I heard about, and I really think that there's a, there is a way that these two can blend, that, that there might be some answers when you think about what's happening in Florida. So there was a leprosy outbreak in Florida. I, I saw this report that came out from the Epic Times. And I want to read to you from the report. It was by Roman. So if any of you guys are not already subscribed, I highly, highly, highly uh, suggest that you subscribe to um, Epic Times. I watch them. I watch it on YouTube. I've really curated my my feed on YouTube to give me the kind of information that I'm interested in. And so I, I get a lot of my news from there. They do great reporting and investigative journalism. So I really, really trust their, uh, the information that comes out. And the other thing that's nice is they always include the links to their sources. So I will also include the links in my show notes for you to do your own research, but let's get back to this. So if you've ever heard of leprosy, if you're a Christian if you, or a Jewish person and you've read the Bible or any religious person, if you've read the Bible, you, you know about leprosy. And when people were infected with leprosy, they were shunned. They were put out of um, 
you know, out to, out to the outskirts. They were basically isolated. People were afraid to be near them. They didn't want to touch them because they didn't understand the mechanism of action for transmission. But it was obvious that someone had leprosy based on the symptoms. So we'll talk about that. But first, I'm going to read to you um, what this is directly coming from the news story. So according to the CDC, leprosy is becoming more widespread in the South, in particular, South Florida. According to this new bulletin put out by the CDC, it turns out that the ancient disease known as leprosy has become more and more widespread over in the South, particularly in Central Florida. In fact, according to this report, 81% of all the leprosy cases in the whole country are located in Florida. So transmission is not fully understood according to the CDC. So they wrote in their release quote, transmission of leprosy has not been fully elucidated. Prolonged person-to-person -person contact through respiratory droplets is the most widely recognized route of transmission. A high percentage of unrelated leprosy cases in the southern United States were found to carry the same unique strain of M. leprite as nine branded armadillos in the region, suggesting a strong likelihood of zoonotic transmission. So according to the CDC, they believe transmission is coming from contact between armadillos. What's strange about that is that most of the people who were diagnosed had no contact with armadillos, had no exposure to them at all. So they're not only, and they were not only trying to blame it on the armadillos, but also on the alligators. So I don't know about you, but I think most people try to steer clear of alligators. Uh, yet that is what they are currently blaming it on. Another reason why this doesn't make a whole lot of sense is because there were also some cases reported in New York City where there's actually no wild armadillos. There were some cases reported in Georgia and Florida where they blamed the armadillos, but again, there was no exposure. So one of the questions is, is there international migration that's causing this? Is that the reason for this sudden outbreak of leprosy? But if that was the case, and this is what Roman brought up, and I think it's a very valid argument, why is it that we're seeing this outbreak in Florida, but not in Texas? That seems weird, right? So if it was really related, directly related to international migration and um, illegal immigration that's happening, it should not just be affecting Florida, but multiple Southern states, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, California, and the sanctuary city of New York. It's kind of interesting that the states with the highest portion, proportion of illegal migration are not struggling with outbreaks of leprosy. So here's a little bit more um, from the article. So apparently there are case studies that exist in other countries for leprosy outbreaks. Uh, for instance, there's a study in Spain and they were trying to understand the role of international migration and, and this outbreak. And what the researchers behind this particular study were able to do was show a link between the surge in leprosy cases in Spain with a five-fold increase in migration from countries where leprosy was prevalent. And despite what you might assume based on geography, 
the majority of these migration-based leprosy cases were not coming from the African continent, even though Spain is literally just a few miles from Africa. Instead, these researchers found that the spike in Spain's leprosy cases was caused by migrants from Central and South America. Specifically, what they wrote, quote, of the 168 leprosy cases registered during the study period, 24.6% were in Spanish patients, while 76.2% were detected in legally resident immigrants. Most important cases were diagnosed in Latin American immigrants. So 71.9%, especially Brazilians, but also Peregrinians and Bolivians and other nationalities from South and Central America, imported cases of leprosy are responsible for most incidents in Spain. And we can now rule out some other diagnoses. And it really does make you wonder if having so many people coming across our border from Mexico, Central and South America, whether or not they're bringing this disease, this leprosy with them. Now, here's something that I never knew. I, who knows really a lot about leprosy, right? Um, so did a little research on leprosy, which I had done some weeks back and I'm not even sure why, but, but I did a little bit of research. I think we were just having a discussion about it. And when I looked it up, it's actually called Hansen's disease and Hansen's disease is treatable. So what I want to first talk about what the signs and symptoms of, of leprosy are, and then we'll talk about the treatment. So Hansen's disease, and this is coming directly from the CDC's website, Hansen's disease, also known as leprosy, is an infection caused by a bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. These bacteria grow very slowly and it, make, it may take up to 20 years to develop signs of the infection. The disease can affect the nerves, skin, eyes, and lining of the nose, the nasal mucosa. The bacteria attack the nerves, which can become swollen under the skin. This can cause the affected areas to lose the ability to sense touch and pain, which can lead to injuries like cuts and burns. Usually the affected skin changes color and either becomes lighter or darker, often dry or flaky with loss of feeling, or reddish due to inflammation of the skin. If left untreated, the nerve damage can result in paralysis of hands and feet. In very advanced cases, the person may have multiple injuries due to lack of sensation, and eventually the body may reabsorb the affected digits over time. So if you ever get a chance to look up pictures of people with leprosy, you'll see that their hands and their feet are very disfigured. And I didn't realize it was because their body was reabsorbing the affected digits, but that's incredible. Um, so it looks, it results in the apparent loss of toes and fingers. So it looks like they have been cut off. But in actuality, the body just reabsorbed the, the affected digits. So that's interesting. Corneal ulcers and blindness can also occur if facial nerves are affected. Other signs of advanced Hansen's disease may include loss of eyebrows and saddle nose deformity resulting from damage to the nasal septum. Early diagnosis and treatment usually prevents disability that can result from the disease and people with Hansen's can continue to work and lead an active life. Once treatment is started, the person is no longer contagious. However, it's very important to finish the entire course of treatment as directed by the doctor. So how do we transmit it? Well, 
it's not fully understood how it's transmitted. They say you cannot get leprosy from casual contact with a person who has Hansen's disease, like shaking hands or hugging, sitting next to each other on the bus or sitting together at a meal. Hansen's disease is also not passed on from a mother to her unborn baby during pregnancy, and it's also not spread through sexual contact. Due to the slow growing nature of the bacteria and the long time it takes to develop signs of the disease, it's often very difficult to find the source of infection. Now here on the uh, website from the CDC, they have a picture of an armadillo. How convenient. So they said here, um, in the southern United States, some armadillos are naturally infected with the bacteria that cause Hansen's disease in people, and it may be possible that they can spread it to people. However, the risk is very low, and most people who come into contact with armadillos are unlikely to get Hansen's disease. So crazy. So when, when I read things like this, I take in what I can. I kind of categorize it into my brain, what I believe to be you know, good information, what I believe to be suspicious and, and, and will require further investigation. And so that's one of them. Um, things like this make me wonder if this is their way of misdirecting our attention. So in my humble opinion and my hypothesis, it's more fair to look at the possibility that this is being spread from um, a lab outbreak an undercover illegally operated bio lab using this as a weapon. And that's my opinion. No, that's my hypothesis. This is all scientific guys. Um, so let's see, what do they say? Who's at risk? Well, it says any adult around the world is, um, has a low risk because more than 95% of all people have natural immunity to the disease. Well, that's interesting. Um, it says you may be at risk for the disease if you live in a country where the disease is widespread. Countries that reported more than a thousand new cases of Hansen's disease to the World Health Organization between 2011 and 2015 are Africa, Asia, and the Americas, Brazil. So in Africa, you have the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Madagascar, Mozambique, Nigeria, and the United Republic of Tanzania. Then in Asia, you've got Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Myanmar, Nepal, Philippines, and Sri Lanka. And then in the Americas, you have Brazil. So potentially we are, if it's not the lab leak that I'm you know, hypothesizing, then it's possible that with the massive migration across our southern border from people, and we know that people who are coming across our borders are coming from all over the world from Africa, from Asia, from the Americas, from South America. I mean, they're coming from all over. So it's definitely possible that they're just bringing these um, undiagnosed and maybe even diagnosed, known, but you know, you're not gonna tell anybody. You're just gonna come across the border with whatever you have. Um, they're coming across with it. But it is strange that we're not seeing a huge outbreak in Texas, but we are seeing an outbreak in Florida. So that's interesting. Um, so what do we do? Signs and symptoms. Let me see. So signs, discolored patches of skin, usually flat that may be numb and look faded. They're lighter than the skin around. Gross. You'll have nodules on the skin, thick, stiff, or dry skin, painless ulcers on the soles of the feet, painless swelling or lumps on the face or earlobes loss of eyebrows or eyelashes, numbness of affected areas of the skin, 
muscle weakness or paralysis, especially in the hands and feet, enlarged nerves, especially those around the elbow and knee and in the sides of the neck, um, eye problems that may lead to blindness, especially if like the facial nerves are affected, and then symptoms caused by the disease in the mucous membranes are a stuffy nose and nosebleeds. Since Hansen's disease affects the nerves, loss of feeling or sensation can occur. So these are the symptoms we talked about before, um, but I bet you're more interested in how do you treat it. First of all, how is it diagnosed? So Hansen's disease can be recognized by the um, assessment. So you'll do a physical assessment. And then what the doctor will do is take a sample of the skin or nerve through a skin biopsy, and they'll look on, under the microscope to see if they see the bacteria. And they may do other tests to rule out other skin diseases, but what they're looking for is that bacteria that I talked about before. And then the treatment. So Hansen's disease is treated with a combination of antibiotics. Typically, two or three antibiotics are used at the same time. These are Dapson with rifampicin and clofazamine, which is added for some types of the disease. This is called a multi-drug therapy. Now this strategy helps prevent the development of antibiotic resistance by the bacteria, which may otherwise occur due to the length of treatment. The length of treatment, you guys, let me tell you, it's long. So treatment usually lasts between one to two years. The illness can be cured if the treatment is completed as prescribed. Imagine taking antibiotics for one to two years straight. That is not an easy thing to do. Um, just finishing a normal course of antibiotics is very difficult for most people and that may only be for a week to two weeks. So now if you're asking someone to take this treatment for one to two years, it's gonna be tough, but it's so important. And I think that the inspiration for anybody who ever gets infected with leprosy is to see the pictures of what it can do to your body if you don't treat it. Now the issue with antibiotic resistance, taking a antibiotic that long, that's a major issue, um, which is why they're doing the, the combination or the multi-drug therapy. But long-term implications for that are also um, important to consider because if this becomes an outbreak that uh, affects a lot of people, and so a lot of people are taking these you know, antibiotics for long-term, then we can really be concerned with um, a drug-resistant bacteria developing. So what do they say? They continue to say, if you're treated for Hansen's disease, it's important to tell your doctor if you experience numbness or loss of feeling in certain parts of the body or in patches of the skin because this may be caused by nerve damage from the infection. If you have numbness and loss of feeling, take extra care to prevent injuries that may occur like burns and cuts. This is similar to um, people who have diabetes. When they start to lose sensation of their feet, they get cuts, don't know that they have these cuts, and that leads to an infection, which is why sometimes they end up having to have um, amputations. So it's so important that if you're losing, like your nerve sensation, it's your nerves are so important to protect you. Pain is protective. So if you're unable to feel the pain, then you do risk, um, you, you put your body at risk for sure. So it says take, take the antibiotics as directed until your treatment is complete. If you stop earlier, the bacteria may start growing again and you may get sick again. 
And then tell your doctor if the affected skin patches become red and painful. Nerves become painful or swollen, or you develop a fever, as these may be complications of Hansen's disease that may require more intensive treatment with medicines that can reduce inflammation. If left untreated, the nerve damage can result in paralysis and crippling of hands and feet. In very advanced cases, the person may have multiple injuries due to lack of sensation, and eventually, the body may reabsorb the affected digits over time, resulting in the apparent loss of toes and fingers. Corneal ulcers or blindness can also occur if facial nerves are affected due to loss of sensation of the cornea outside of the eye. Other signs of advanced leprosy may include a loss of eyebrows and saddle nose deformity like we talked about before. For anyone who is wondering, the uh, CDC runs these special clinics where you can actually get treated for the uh, Hansen's disease or leprosy. They're federally supported and funded. So there's a link on their website if you or someone you know gets infected and needs treatment. Because again, two years of antibiotics is not going to be cheap. So that's it. That's all I have for you guys today. I wanted you guys to be aware of what's going on. Make whatever connections you want to make with the information that's been presented. It's totally up to you. And you actually may find some interesting information that I overlooked. And I would love to hear what you, your thoughts are. So send me an email. Uh, let me know what you think. What is your hypothesis on what's going on? Is it possible that we have these undercover labs sprinkled all over the country? And are they releasing these pathogens into the environment specifically to infect us? Is this a biological warfare that we are being exposed to? I don't know, but my goal here is to shine a light in the darkness. It's time